Welcome to Live in the Nutba. You're here with JB and David Cunningham. Hey, we're episode 22, JB. Wow. So uh, a bit of a milestone. Now you've missed two of the last four. Yeah. I've been carrying the can because you've just come <laughs> back from skiing a few weeks ago, and then China. So I reckon today it'll be really interesting. Maybe first just touch on the RBO, RBNZ, OCR, and we, what that, where that might take us over yeah. the next year or two, and then we'll get into sort of your experiences and reflections from China, and maybe how that might or might not impact New Zealand. So first the OCR on Wednesday, what was your take on the well, I think large, I think largely as we would have expected, I was kind of glad because you never quite know going into these things, but yeah. I mean we've been saying for a long time that it's done, mm. that there's still more tightening to come through. I think we're still probably a little bit more on the aggressive side in terms of rate falls mm. you know, next year. Mm. You know, the market's still buying the story of 2025. Mm. But, um, oh look, I felt, I felt it was about where we would expect it. What were your thoughts? Yeah, look, I went through all the commentary and the minutes of the meeting with a highlighter. Yes. And I, I gave it a green if it was, in my opinion, dovish, and a blue if it was, in my opinion, a sort of a hawkish or a cautionary stance. And there were about 20 dovish comments across the two statements, the statement and the minutes, yeah. and about nine that could be called hawkish or cautionary. So a net 11, what I'd call dovish. Yeah. What's been interesting is different economists have interpreted people different ways. Like on the day, there, oh, was, no. there was one of the banks that said, well, we were expecting a hawkish statement and it was dovish, and, and, and they'd been quite bearish on it. Yeah. Oh, it's quite hawkish going into it. And then another one that said, well, that was a hawkish statement. And it was like, what are you reading here? And so I think there's a bit of a justifying your position. but. Look, I think the clear message from the Reserve Bank is they've done the, the work, now they just need to sit on their hands and when inflation starts to fall aggressively, they'll start to ease aggressively. Because remember, their mandate is one to three. Mm. It's not two, it's one to three. And so they just need to have a pathway to get to know that inflation's going to be back below three. They don't be, need to be targeting the lowest sort of level as some economists have sort of suggested. And so um, it's a matter of time, and they're just going to hold rates here until mm. that happens because they know that sitting on their hands for as long as it takes sees mortgage rates that, on average, that New Zealanders are paying go up from about 5% on average today, just over 5 If interest rates stay here for nine months a year, we'll be getting up towards 7 So there's this massive monetary policy tightening in play. With that context, why would they even think about moving the OCR up Maybe not down, but absolutely not up. And so the economists that are saying it will go up have got rocks in their head, in my opinion. I think the only thing that to worry about is if inflation didn't drop, maybe there's some shock that pushes it up, then they're going to tighten. But it's not going to be 25 points. It's going to be 100 points because they then need to move hard and fast to stop things. But they, you know, that's a remote scenario. The central scenario is the world over... Central banks have been fighting inflation and inflation's coming down the world over and it will come down in New Zealand. Every economic indicator is really weak in New Zealand. I mean, real GDP per capita is Bam. falling massively. Yeah. It has for six quarters already and it's probably got another four to go. It's actually one of the deepest recessions in GDP per capita in many decades. So things are really I, bad. I, I know, that's the fascinating thing, right? You can bring in you know, any number of uh, massage therapists that you want, but it, it's not really helping the economy, mm, you mm, know? Mm. So, I mean, I guess the immigration sort of in pockets has helped unlock, you know, real constraints in the system. It's clearly been abused. 
The really interesting thing for me is a friend of mine who's in IT made the comment a few days ago that they're not having any problems now um, picking up good developers. Yeah. You know, yeah. so not yeah. just developers, but good developers. And for them, you know, 18 months ago, that industry was just, there was just no talent available mm. at all. So mm. that's, you know. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's the thing is that, is that the way that the massive spike in inflation was a lot led by a shortage of labour. And that's disappeared off businesses' radars as the thing constraining their business. Now it's lack of sales, and that's because real sales and volumes are falling aggressively because households have less and less money. So, hey, the turning to sort of the more global economy, you've just been in China for 10 or 12 days. So yeah. what, what's your takes on China? Oh, look, it's interesting. It's always nice going over there. I mean, we've talked about China quite a bit in this podcast over the last couple of months, I guess. And I think um, none of that really changes. There's clearly a lot going on over there, and some of it's, it's negative, but you wouldn't feel it on the ground. I think they've got a real problem with being locked up. It's almost like there's actually this kind of thing for New Zealand and China, because I think we're both suffering from it. I think we were locked up too much mm. and, and treated like children, mm. and we've kind of backlashed against it. And uh, I feel China's very much the same way. Okay. You know, Talking to people in Shanghai, you know, who, who probably had the most draconian set of lockdowns and only came out of it earlier this year. Mm. For context, our lockdowns, you know, we could go for a walk to the park, to the beach. Uh, when we're at level three, it was kind of business as usual, as long as you kind of kept a bit of distance between you and everyone else, right? Mm. For us in Auckland that, that went through that second lockdown, you know, China, they were literally locked in their apartment. Mm. No sunshine. No outdoors, no walking in the park mm. um, for months, mm. months and months. And, um, and I think it's, it really did take a toll on them. And I think they've really struggled with that. And it, it, there's a secondary impact of that as well, which is there's a lot of people over there that aren't very happy with their government at the moment. Right. But that's nothing that's talked about publicly, obviously. It's, it's a very private conversation. And talking to people, there's definitely a level of frustration there that they've just been locked down for so long. Mm. Um, you know, building activities clearly taken a massive hit, even in places like Shanghai and Beijing, you can see a lot of, you can see, I'll tell you what, I caught the bullet train from Shanghai to, to Beijing. That's about 1,400 kilometers. Yeah. Uh, so what's that, uh, the length of New Zealand. Yeah. A four-hour train trip goes 350 kilometres an hour. Mm. So it'll be like Auckland to Invercargill and, and some, and that's yeah. at least two hours on a plane, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. four yeah. hours door yeah. to door. Door to door, yeah. Um, absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah. But, but, you so, know, so the infrastructure in China, does it really stand out as yeah. sort of... Yeah, oh, it's, it's incredible. But the thing I couldn't get over is, so you're, you're travelling across, you know, a good chunk of China, probably mm. longitudinally, probably... A, over half, or maybe close to half of it. And so you actually just get a bit of perspective as you're going. Mm. Holy crap, 1.3 billion people. It's like there's buildings everywhere. Everywhere. Like. So across that 1,400 kilometres, you just, see, you know, if that was New Zealand, you'd be in farmland most of the time. You just so it's see, not like that over no, there? No, no, just buildings everywhere. And mm. like, you know, the equivalent in New Zealand would be, you know, you've got sort of, you know, Wellington and, and, and Auckland. Mm. But imagine every town in between 
having 30 level buildings. Mm. It's honestly like that. It's like you're going through towns that don't even show on the China map <laughs> and, and there will be like 30 or 40 high-rise apartment buildings. Yeah, yeah. There's no design element to it. It's kind of funny, like in Shanghai and Beijing, you know, the, the buildings are actually quite stunning and beautiful, you know, like the architecture is amazing. When you get into these smaller towns, they look kind of Soviet industrial chic, you know, yeah. it's just like 30 buildings and, that look identical. And what identical. exists in those towns of, you Factories. know, million, half a million people in these towns, or is it fewer than that? Oh yeah, no, no, it'd be over a mil. Yeah, so a million, million people, so bigger than Wellington and Christchurch combined. Yeah. And, and it's just, it doesn't even appear on the map, and they're factory towns. Factory it? towns, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just like massive factories. Mm. And uh, and you know, just accommodating people in these these um, apartment blocks, and it's just it's just staggering. I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get over just thinking I'm travelling between two cities. There's one or two cities in between, so I'm, we might sort of have a couple of cities. But we literally had just what seemed like endless city mm. from from Shanghai to Beijing. Mm, mm. It's a bit like when you're in Melbourne, for example, you drive out to the wine district, and you're, you're actually only out of suburban Melbourne for about two kilometres, <laughs> yeah. just before you get to the Barossa, I think it is, isn't it? It's the Barossa. Yeah. yeah, hey, the other thing that I, I found really surprising, hardly any Westerners there at the moment. So obviously with the lockdowns, mm. a lot of them left, because mm. um, I think Shanghai historically has had quite a big sort of Western community, um, or expat community, and uh, it's just not there at the moment. And um, New Zealand's opened up to China, or China's opened up to New Zealand quite early. Like We still had to go through a bit of process to get visas. Mm. Um, and I think Australia is similar to us, but the rest of the world hasn't opened up yet. Mm. And of course, so no one's really traveling there on a tourist visa. Um, if anyone's going, they're going for business. And then the other problem that China's got at the moment is the fractious relationship that's developed with a number of countries. Not you know, New Zealand were probably okay, but Australia's obviously had a pretty fractious relationship. Mm. The US clearly has mm. um, parts of Europe, and uh, but but probably closer to home. You know, their relationship with places like Japan and stuff at the moment isn't great either. And you know, Japanese have actually been good tourists into China, so. Um, their tourism sector is really, really struggling. There's literally no one there. We we would have seen. It's hard to tell with Asians mm. if they're tourists or not. And there's a lot of domestic tourism. Yeah. But we we would have only seen a handful of Western tourists mm. a day. Mm. So what was your sense of the economy? Because despite those shutdowns, those lockdowns that you know only finished earlier this year, you know actually due to public pressure as well, wasn't mm. it? Um, yeah. You know, it was like suddenly there were all these protests, then suddenly the lockdowns were gone. It was really interesting to see how that happened. But, you know, despite that, I think China's economy never went severely into, you know, negative GDP, did it? No, 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 I don't, you know, think, so, I don't think it has. Yeah. I mean, they've had um, a little bit of deflation creep through yeah, in yeah. terms of things like pork prices and stuff. Yeah. And they've got an unemployment problem at the moment with their youth, which I don't quite understand. Mm. Um, but they've got very high youth unemployment. And I think there's, we've talked about it before, but I think there's definitely an emerging issue in China with, you know, generational issue where, mm. you know, the older Chinese were quite happy to sort of toe the party line and do things a certain way. The younger are pushing back on that. Mm. That's been brewing for decades. Mm. 
Um, but you know, this younger generation coming through now with all of its technology, I think they've just got a harder job on their hands. Mm -hmm. I came away from the trip very, very positive on China. Okay. You know, people have talked about it being a modern miracle and they've talked about it, you know, everyone talks, oh, economy and, you know, taking them out of poverty and stuff. But, you know, go back. Um, China was an absolute basket case in the you know, post-war environment. Yeah, Mao's sort of time. Eh? Mao's yeah. time where you know, lots of people were killed. Yeah. Uh, China literally closed itself to the world mm. and was a, you know, was a really strong communist state right through into the 70s, mm. uh, maybe arguably through to the yeah, late 70s. It really kicked in in the 80s, right? And then they've taken 1.3 billion people out of poverty. And... It's the second safest country I've ever traveled in after oh, Japan. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Japan just feels so safe. So, so what would you say are the implications? You know, you're talking quite positively about China, whereas perhaps a month ago on our podcast, you were actually quite dark on sort of China. Has your view changed a bit? And what does that mean for New Zealand if it yeah, has? Oh, no, it hasn't. I, look, I think there's still lots of issues in China that they need to work through. But it's a huge economy and, you know... They'll, they'll get through it. I mean, it's just like, look, we all go through recessions, we all go through slowdowns, China's no different. I think that it is having to make some pretty big adjustments in its economy, um, just like everyone does. Uh, you know, so um, for us in New Zealand, you know, the slowdown in China has an impact. Mm. It's, I mean, it's things like our exports of dairy and meats, yeah. really, isn't it? It's probably dairy is the main one, and interestingly, the last... I think the last three or four dairy auctions have all been positive, and so you had sort of this massive stocking up, and then you know they, you know, Chinese especially exited the market, and part of that was deflation in China and just everyone tightening their belts, and you know it appears that that's sort of opening up. So I suppose that's positive for New Zealand's economy, which is probably a good thing because there are so many negative things um, facing us at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's look, it's a remarkable place. And um, the other thing that I thought was really cool. Is um, so, so two things that really stood out for me. One is their adoption of electric vehicles. Yeah, mm. I think you've mentioned it in our podcast before. I think you said maybe 40% oh. of uh, cars now I think are it's electric. the most electrified country in the world already. Yeah, and you cars. can see it, you yeah, can see right. it when you're there. Like, um, they have uh, I think it's green plates for electric cars and blue license plates for. Um, petrol, diesel. That's quite clever, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the sheer volume of green plates, it's just amazing to, to see. Um, the other thing that I, th I didn't really appreciate until I was on the ground is they, have, they are probably the first country in the world to be genuinely almost cashless. Right, yep. You know, it's really interesting. This, this is a philosophical discussion because it's always risky going there, but when you talk about communism versus democracy or or some sort of state controlled economy versus you know one that's kind of just yeah just go for it nice and loose um because it's really good you know i mean it's a surveillance state you walk anywhere and there are cameras everywhere you know yeah. like on a street corner there'll be 60 cameras everything's tracked your passport's tracked everywhere you get scanned everywhere with your national id um, you pay for everything electronically, so there's no cash anymore, mm. you know, which wouldn't be great for drug dealers, but for everyone else, <laughs> it's fine. So it's actually pretty impressive. Um, so we pay, Alipay. If you don't have a smartphone in China, you wouldn't survive these days. Mm -hmm. So did you use cash ever? The, um, yeah, look, the only time we used cash was for taxis. Yeah. And the only reason we used it for taxis is that we had problems 
paying for taxis on WePay, but we shifted to Alipay partway through the trip and we could do it on Alipay, so then we moved to paying for taxis on Alipay. Right. Um, and the reason for that is that obviously these systems have really taken hold in the last three or four years over there. They've been around for a while, but the last three or four years they really took off, mm. especially during these lockdowns. And um, tourists weren't there, and so they didn't really think about tourists mm. when they were putting all this stuff in place, right? So we turn up and you have to use WePay and Alipay for everything. That sounds good in principle. That means you download the app and attach your credit card to it? Yeah. yeah. Now, the Chinese, they actually have digital currency, so they don't need to attach a credit card to it. But as a foreigner, oh. you have to attach a credit card to it. And the credit card attachment's not that good. Okay. Um, and do they like Visa and MasterCard in China? No, they don't. Well, they don't need it because no. everyone uses WePay and Alipay. So um, credit cards have really taken a back seat over yeah. there. So when you say digital currency, what does that mean? With uh, WePay or Alipay, you can uh, transact in digital currency. I store it in a wallet, mm. and so no physical cash, or you can transact with your credit card sitting in the background, right. yeah. which was really put there for tourists. But the, the, the problem with the credit card thing is that half the time the screens are in Chinese, so you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so you'll be in a shop, and you, know, you go to pay for it, you scan your QR code, and they go, cool, and you get a confirmation up on your screen that's totally in Chinese. <laughs> right, yeah. That's where you need two phones, and you point your second phone at the first phone to do Google Translate yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you're just pressing green buttons, hoping you're doing the right thing. Yeah, green thing. is generally good. <laughs> just like, like green number plates for, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah look, I was, I was surprised how few people could speak English, but then, um, you know, things like Google Translate, uh, so brilliant mm -hmm. and um, God it's so much easier to travel now than it was 30 years ago mm -hmm. so interesting reflections the you know playing back what you've sort of said the centrally controlled economy and it must be hard to manage an economy of that size but the centrally controlled economy can drive things like green vehicles yeah. electric vehicles from nothing to you know probably the entire economy inside sort of five years, it sounds sort of sound, you know, incredibly quickly. Same with payments, things can move incredibly quickly. Whereas left to the devices of places like New Zealand, you know, we, we stumble our way along at times and it might take longer to get there and probably because it's more individual decision making uh, along the journey. And, and I guess there's always people in there to make money out of it. Like, you know, you'd sort of say a payment system which was one of the most efficient in the world for decades with FPOS, mm. you know, has been destroyed by you know, um, the schemes becoming involved in payments, the credit card schemes, which has added costs, slow down the process and so on. And so, you know, good argument for central planning and I don't know, the Chinese version of communism in <laughs> yeah. some ways, right? In some ways, oh, absolutely. And, and look, I, the interesting thing is I've traveled obviously through India, and in now parts of China, you know, mm. it's still limited travel, and, and I've taken the kids on both of those trips. Mm. And it's really interesting because, you know, I think if I look at the two of them, I'd say, you know, China has been a far more successful model than India. Mm. That's pretty ballsy cool, right? But the way I would say that is if I looked at the general uplift across the population, mm. like you do not see poverty in China like you see in India. Mm. You know, for the two mm. most populous countries in the world, mm. Mm. The Chinese look after their people a yeah. hell of a lot better. I remember in India a few years back now, but I was speaking to a guy that worked at IBM there, and and I said, you know, here I am in this beautiful office building with you know a 
atrium with waterfalls and marble everywhere and so on, you know, five stories high and that. And then I turned 90 degrees and I'm looking at the world's biggest slum. And I said, you know, how do you deal with that? He said, well, the only thing to do is to use commerce to gradually lift the standard of everyone. Whereas I suppose China's approach is just central planning, build the damn factories and lift, you know, take people lift out people of out. poverty rather than let capitalism sort of do it, which is probably more the um, Indian approach. Yeah, 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 yeah. And look, and there's, there's rights and wrongs with both systems. And and Chinese version of communism has plenty of flaws in it as well, but it's pretty remarkable what they've done. And and I think, you know, if you were to go through the basic tick the boxes of what people need, housing, they've got one of the highest levels of home ownership in the world. Mm. Um, one of the highest savings rates in the world. I think one of the highest savings too. rates yeah. in the world. They've clearly taken a massive population out of poverty. Mm. And whilst there are some people at the top that have done incredibly well out mm. of it, it is broad. Did, did you sense there is a lot of personal freedom? Because I sort of hear what you say about everything. You know, there are cameras every year you're being sort of oh. followed. But despite that, is there a real sense of personal freedom? Or Yeah, not? it's not It's not that bad. It's funny, eh? Because I think if you're not there, you would always take a view on it being a lot worse than it is. It's not bad. Mm. Um, look, I think... As long as you're behaving yourself and you're not mm. causing trouble, mm. um, you can move very freely mm. around China. Everyone's very friendly, yeah. and that's fine. I think if you, you know, if, if you cause trouble, and and look, the challenge with that is that you know some people that cause trouble are actually you know fighting for freedoms or just want to have a voice on on topics that may be contentious, and that's obviously frowned upon in China. It's not good. Um, Crime levels are very, very low because you commit a crime, you're going to get caught. Mm, mm, mm. Hey, is there one thing, if, if I said, you know, what's one thing that China does brilliantly that we should do in New Zealand from what you've seen? Is, is there something or not? <laughs> one thing. <laughs> <laughs> one thing. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know, to be honest. I, I mean, look, if the simple thing would be just to... Um, is for us to embrace, I guess, digitize. The one thing is, China's very good at organizing things to be efficient. I mean, Japan's the same, Asia's good at this, right? Where we're not so good at it. Um, I think a identity card and a system that basically pulls all of our data together to make life much easier for people yeah. would be brilliant. Now, the, the civil libertarians <laughs> will be freaking out about that, right? Because it would be like, oh, identity card, my God. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> it would be a digital one, though, wouldn't it? Well, we all, we, we all have one anyway. I mean, yeah, well, whenever right. you do anything number, here, we've got a driver's license. Driver's license, yeah. You know, driver's license, credit cards, they're all yeah. identity yeah. documents. Well, I suppose that's the thing, you know, join any new financial services business or whatever, AML, you know, you've got to show your identity to everyone it goes through, you know, we should have a digital identity sort of system in New Zealand. And I guess that creates for more efficiency, but it just never come together, has it? No, but you can sort of see the benefits of it. Like I was thinking about this on the way home, actually, you know, it was like Auckland Airport, the classic example. I mean, it's one of the worst airports I've, I've been to. <laughs> it's an embarrassment uh, in terms of, you know, you can be in queues for hours on end. So here's the thing, right? We fly into Shanghai. So it's a city of uh, 24 million people, right? From the time we got off the plane to out of customs waiting for a taxi, it would have been, uh, well, for Charlotte, who came in second, we were a bit slow because we had to try and figure out how to use WeChat. 
because mm. you, you use WeChat and scan your way through. Mm. And we took a bit longer, but we were able to tell Charlotte what to do. Mm. Charlotte took probably no more than 15 to 20 minutes from, mm. the, from getting off the plane mm. to waiting for me. She had to wait an hour for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I was stuck in traffic. Uh. But, um, you know, in Auckland Airport, it's a mess, right? Um, well, that said, I've been through Auckland Airport in 15 minutes as well. Well, so I guess they're you're very off ability. peak. Yeah, you're yeah. off peak. But yeah. what, what they've done there is just they've digitised the whole process. We're getting better at it here. But you know what? The real opportunity would be to basically move Australia to the domestic airport. Aren't we moving the domestic airport to the international airport? Isn't that what's building? Oh, yeah. I'm not sure what they're doing, but, but yeah. what I yeah. mean is just make travelling yeah. to Australia the same as domestic yeah. flight. Yeah. Why do we Why do we push that through an international terminal? Yeah. 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 Your facial scan as you come through, there's nothing to do because you know facial recognition is so powerful these days, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, hey, look, we should wrap up there. It's, uh, you know, it's been an interesting one, talk about <laughs> sort of China, but nothing like being on the ground to get a perspective of what's going, um, going on and that. Yeah. So, that's us for this week. Uh, God knows what we'll cover next week, but we'll work that out. <laughs> okay. Catch you again soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have any questions or things you'd like us to talk about in the future, get in touch with us at david at squirrel.co.nz or john at squirrel.co.nz. And please do share this uh, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not financial advice or a recommendation of any financial product. Any commentary provided are personal views and are not necessarily representative of the opinions of Squirrel. As always, we recommend seeking professional investment or mortgage advice before taking any action.